Hi, and welcome to the Reimagining Intent podcast. My name is Ethan Woodson, and on this episode, we interview Nate Thompson. Nate is a bluegrass music enthusiast who also has an affinity for corny dad jokes. He grew up in the small town of Swink, Colorado, and eventually gained a BS in sociology and religion from Phillips University and a master's of social work from Washington University in St. Louis. He is currently the director of social, emotional, and behavior services for Littleton Public Schools, overseeing mental health services, crisis intervention, and various other support services. He also has experience in nonprofit management, child and family therapy, policy analysis, and youth ministry. In this interview, we get into the brain and how we deal with fear, especially in the education world. Nate shares stories of shootings that have happened and how, how the families of these communities have dealt with these horrific incidents. We discuss the drama, trauma, culture around young adults, and some great information on mental health and social media. This interview is so informational and gives so many great tips that people can use in their own life, so please listen and take it all in. Be sure to check out our website at reimaginingintent.com and follow us on social media at reimaginingintent. Without further ado, Nate Thompson. There's just as much research that says if you practice gratitude, if you practice um, uh, positive relationships, right, that you're you're going to impact your mental health just as much as if you take Prozac. Hi, welcome to the Reimagining Intent podcast. I'm Ethan Whitson. I'm here with my co-host Pablo Forsyth Simon, and today we have Nate Thompson on the show. Nate, thanks for joining us. Glad to be here. We were wondering if you could just start off with a quick life summary of everything you've been through. Well, it depends how far back you want to go. Um, I grew up, I was born in Denver, but I grew up in a small town in southern Colorado. Uh, It's a little town called Swink. It was about 800 people. So I graduated (laughs) with 23 in my class. Wow. Um, And there were times when I really enjoyed living in that town. There were times when I wish I was in a bigger city. But looking back, I'm really glad that I did. I think there was a lot of lessons there. Uh, Life was slower. Um, And then I, I went to college at a school in Oklahoma called Phillips University, small liberal arts college, um, and uh, got a degree in sociology and religion, and then went to graduate school in St. Louis at Washington University in St. Louis, and got my master's of social work there, and uh, worked in St. Louis for a couple of years, and then moved back here, and then been working in Denver area since about 98, and I've worked in a few different jobs. Um, and uh, currently work for Littleton School District. Cool. So I have your business card in front of me, and it says, Littleton Public Schools, Director of Social, Emotional, and Behavioral Services. How, can you maybe tell us more about your job and what you really go through on a daily basis? Sure. Uh, so this is a position that our school district didn't have until about five years ago, and um, it just really grew out of the need. Um, I think our schools and especially our principals were just identifying how much uh, the social, emotional, and mental health challenges were increasing in their students and how much of their day they were spending just working on those and solving those challenges. And so we kind of took some different things and made this one position. And so I, I oversee kind of our mental health services, support our all of our counselors, psychologists, and social workers in the district, um, support principals when they have issues in schools. Um, kind of oversee our, our protocols and interventions for suicide and for threats, um, for child abuse, um, uh, bullying, those kind of things. And then also oversee our discipline and our what we call our crisis response team. So the team that 
supports and provides counseling uh, after an incident. What is, I, I'm sure you've had some insane stories. Are there any like stories you'd like to share of some events that's really touched you in your life? Yeah, I mean, uh, and you, are you talking before um, or this just, job or just Just during your job, like. Yeah, I think is part of the job. Um, I mean, the hard part about my job is I, I kind of say, um, when when I walk in a building, people say, oh, it's been nice not to see you. <laughs> because typically I'm showing up when something rough has happened. Not always. Um, I, I get some of the prevention work as well, which is good. But um, I think for me, the hardest part is just um, typically a student death is probably the hardest thing that we deal with. Um, sometimes a staff member death, but typically it's a sudden tragic death of a student. And um, I went through that when I was... Uh, uh, right after my senior year in, in high school, I lost my best friend and future college roommate uh, to suicide. And so I think that's part of why I got into this job. Um, but it's it's hard every single time, whether it's a suicide, whether it's a school shooting or a um, just a car accident um, or even a natural death. It's, it's hard every time. And so uh, I think the hardest part really is um, helping students understand and come to terms with the way that their world has changed. Right. And can you talk a little bit about the protocol that Littleton Public Schools goes through when something like this happens? Yeah, I think that's that's really changed through the years as well. Um, when I, I came out of the clinical mental health world, so I was doing like in-home therapy and residential day treatment services for kids who were really struggling. And, and then when I came into the schools, mental health really wasn't a big focus. And so yeah, when, when something would happen, you would, you know, you'd see, oh, they'd call a few counselors to come to the school and hang out and talk to kids. But that was really it, is just crisis counselors were there, and you've probably heard that. But we've gotten a lot more advanced with that. So, so like, now, um, we one of the things we do is we immediately identify who would be kind of the, um, what we call a triage. So we basically try to identify who are the, the kids and the staff and, and um and community members who are highest at risk based on, on this trauma. So for example, if you lose a student in a school, you're, you're looking at the immediate friend group as much as you can. You're looking at, you know, boyfriends or girlfriends, um, kids who maybe had a recent negative interaction with that kid and maybe feel guilty. Um, kids who are already kind of at risk because of their own, you know, depression or whatever. And we're doing specific outreach to those kids. So we're going out and finding them. We're talking to their parents. Um, we're educating them about kind of how grief and trauma impacts your brain, and we're trying to help them with some strategies, get them connected to, you know, outside counseling or whatever. Um, we run groups. Um, so, uh, for example, this year um, we lost two students to suicide within three days in, in October, and, um, and we've been running groups since then with a targeted group of kids. So it's a pretty extensive process. Um, when we when we responded to the shooting that we had at Arepo High School, we um, we did some pretty advanced techniques, things like gradual re-exposure. So some of those kids who were exposed to some of the most graphic scenes mm-hmm. um, or near where the shooting happened, we actually started with having them kind of at a separate place just together talking about their experience and talking to their parents and sharing the, their memories. And then we had them look at a map of the school and kind of talk through where they were and what happened. And then eventually we worked up to them going back into the school and kind of walking through and 
rewalking the route that they they went through and a lot of conversation about your brain and your brain's alarm system and how that works and um, sensory triggers and those kind of things so it can go from you know um, kind of just basic checking in with kids all the way to pretty extensive mm -hmm. stuff how do you go about the grief process like when you have to go deal with the families what does that do to you as a human <laughs> um well, it's hard every time, and I think um, you basically just have to treat people with care and love, and like they're your family members, even if you just met them. Um, you, uh, I think I've done this long enough now that our team sometimes knows more about what a family's going to go through than they do, and that's hard because you're gently trying to tell them, kind of here's here's some of the things that are going to happen and that that you're going to have to deal with, and. Um, some of the dynamics with dealing with your son or daughter's friends who are going to want over and want to come over and see you. Um, you're going to have hundreds, 600, 700 kids at the funeral, and how are you going to prepare for that? Um, how are you taking care of yourself? So, so we spend a lot of time just trying to help them because we know we've, we've been through it enough to kind of know what stages they're going to go through. Um, but every family's different. Some some families are really open and want that. Um, support from a school district crisis team and some don't some kind of are like hey we'll, we'll take this on our own um, but we have to do our own processing and debriefing because of the secondary trauma piece so the more that you deal with it as a responder it's just like a you know a police officer or a firefighter if you're exposed to pretty graphic scenes you have to do your own debriefing and processing too right and so going along those lines are there ways that you relieve stress because I feel like this is a very high stress job Yes. Um, can you talk about ways you kind of relieve your stress and calm yourself? Yeah. I, I, um, for me personally, uh, music is a big one. Um, I, I sit and play the guitar, which is probably the most therapeutic thing I can do. Um, exercise is really big. Um, I can really tell when I'm not exercising. <laughs> uh, just being with my kids and my family helps too. Uh, and, then, and then sometimes just, um, you know, just a quiet time. I think we don't, none of us get enough quiet time <laughs> right. anymore. Yeah. Um, and I want to go back to kind of, you mentioned before this podcast started, uh, how our brain works with fear mm. um, and just kind of the whole process when you deal with something so traumatic like that, can you talk about the process the brain goes through? Yeah. And I could talk for an hour about just about the brain because it's so fascinating, but I think we're, we're, we're seeing a lot more research, like we're just seeing you know, loads of research now come out about how the brain works. And what I like to talk about with people when you're in a grief process is just when, especially if you felt like your life was in danger, your, your brain is so attuned to, to danger in your environment that it, um, it, it goes into a different mode. It goes into an alarm mode. So the best example I give to people is like, um, if you've ever been driving and you, you kind of have that feeling like, like someone was going to swerve at you or whatever and you have that rush that comes in your body of like your body's getting ready to respond to something um, uh, it's just kind of this um, alarm system that your brain sets off and what it does is it works differently in a, in a crisis situation or if, you, if you've been through a pretty traumatic situation because your brain is so attuned to find threats in your environment it, it zeroes in on things that are um, danger to you and so for example if um, if you were near a pretty significant event, if you were in a car crash or you were near a shooting um, uh, or found your friend who had died of suicide, 
your, your brain is going to go into a protection mode. And what happens is your body stores those memories in a lot more of a sensory way. So it's not up in the front of your brain where you're, it's kind of the, the rational cortex part of your brain. It's really down in the, the lower the limbic system and the lower uh, brain that controls your heart rate and your sense of smell and, and all those things. And so what happens is those memories get stored in, in your sensory way. And that's where people then have triggers, right? So you may have a certain smell or a certain sound that triggers that emotional response of fear. Um, and so it's just a matter of really helping figure out what are the techniques to get your brain back to baseline. Um, because that's what PTSD really is. Your, your brain is still out of whack because it's still got all of these um, fear triggers going on, right? And can you elaborate a little bit on those techniques that you guys use? Yeah, so some of the most common ones are um, things like breathing. So, so breathing and regulating your heart rate through breathing is like a number one way to kind of get your brain back to baseline. Um, and, and you even see this, so, so you can see it with neurodevelopmental disorders, so kids with developmental disabilities or kids with emotional disabilities and mental health issues. Uh, kids with early trauma in their lives, they, they went through abuse or neglect or um, other issues, they struggle with this too, even without going through some, you know, incident, right? But breathing is number one, so trying to get your heart rate down to a resting, you know, calm state. Um, the other thing a lot of people do is they'll do um, relaxation tapes, so you, you listen, you know, to those um, guided meditations or whatever that, that kind of help lower your rate. We always advocate for exercise getting in the sun, you know, trying to eat healthy, um, those kind of things mm-hmm. are, are really big techniques. Um, and then there are some real advanced therapy techniques too. Uh, there's one called EMDR, which um, it started with some, some eye movement stuff, but it's, it's a technique that uses tapping and buzzing and, um, and eye movement basically as a way to try to access some of those traumas that are underneath. Yeah. So that's kind of a more advanced. <clears throat> I want to go back to more of the portion where it first happens like Mm -hmm. how does the environment of high school lead to mental health and i was wondering Mm -hmm. if you could possibly talk about what some of our other guests have described as almost a pressure cooker of an environment of what our kids go through in high school today yeah i think i think a lot of people are really interested in that because um more and more what you're hearing from people is it just feels like too much and um and what I hear from kids a lot as we talk to them is um, that really the, the stress and the pressure to, to succeed and be perfect and get into the right college and all that stuff, it really starts earlier. And, um, and so by the, you know, by the time you get to high school, it's, it's not even that the parents are putting the pressure on anymore. It's you're putting it on yourself. Mm-hmm. And so um, what I hear from kids a lot is, is just I can't keep up with who I think I'm supposed to be and who everybody else, you know, um, my, my reputation with everybody else and I can't always have the perfect picture, you know, on Instagram mm-hmm. or, you know, I can't, um, keep up with all my streaks on Snapchat <laughs> and I can't get perfect grades and then they think they're a failure. And so part of it for me is I think one of the challenges we've, we've lost is kids don't know how to fail anymore. And so what happens is the first time, if the first time you fail is in high school on an AP exam or not getting into the college you want to get into, that's a problem. Um, you know, you have to learn how to fail early in life. And if, if you haven't been exposed to that, it, I, I do think there's some, some of this that parents own around how, how much we let our kids fail. 
And so I talk a lot to parents about, you know, how are you letting your kid fail? If, if you're always coming in and rescuing and um, always setting up situations where your kid gets a ribbon or, you know, gets a trophy or, you know, you're jumping in and, and talking to the teacher about a homework situation, your kid's not learning how to fail and learning that you can get through failure, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I do think there are some people who are predisposed and have a more susceptibility to being depressed or anxious um, but I also do think technology yeah. has a lot to do with it. Yeah, and I think those like desires to be perfect kind of parallel directly with social media. I know you have some interesting mm-hmm. thoughts on mm-hmm. our current state of social media and where it's going. Mm. Yeah, here's what I like to say is I think I think your generation, the generation that's grown up with smartphones, the first generation that's grown up with smartphones is part of the biggest social experiment we've ever tried on on teenagers in the history of the world which is if you're constantly exposed to a screen and to rapid images and social exposure um, on a nonstop basis, what does that do to you? What does that do to your brain? What does it do to your regulation? Um, We already know from a bunch of research studies that it's had a huge impact on kids in terms of just other things that teenagers normally do, like when they start driving. Um, It's even impacted teenage sex, uh, which is interesting. and um, and dating and, and first relationships and those kind of things. So the more that kids are engaged with those devices, the more that they're losing some of the other things that we know are really important. And I would say the number one is just being outside. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we know how important it is for people to be outside and be engaged with nature, and we're losing that. Do you ever think social media can be a tool, like a positive tool, or is it always a bad thing? Yeah, no, I, I, I do. I'm, I'm not an anti-technology person, but I think the problem is you're, when, you, when, when kids have access to social media at that age, when they're most susceptible to the, the problems of peer dynamics anyway. So, so think about who you were in seventh grade, right? And you think about the challenges of seventh grade, and you're going through puberty, and you're trying to figure out who you are in relation to other kids, and you've got all this, you know, you know, kids just positioning themselves on the totem pole. And, and you're also now exposed to constant, um, not, not just stuff from your friends like Snapchats and texts and that kind of stuff. But you're also exposed to, um, you know, criticism and you're exposed to marketing from, from big corporations, right? And, um, and all of those trends that make you kind of feel like, well, I have to keep up with all of this. So... Yes, there are great things that can be done with social media, and I think you're seeing some of that. I think we're seeing now the, the kind of the rebound of, you know, kids in your generation who are saying, man, I'm kind of tired of this, the way that this all was. I want to turn this around and, and either use it for good or limit myself to a certain extent. Um, I'm, I'm hearing teenagers tell me, I kind, of, I kind of wish I grew up in a time when I wasn't chained to my phone, right? Yeah. And I think that's something at least I'm shifting towards is just not using my phone as much and using it more as a platform to help people and to reach a broader audience. I don't think it always has to be, you know, attached at the hip to you. Yeah, well, and and I think the other thing that a lot of people don't know, and especially our younger generation, is that there there are hundreds and thousands of engineers and psychologists in Silicon Valley and other places who are designing these apps and softwares to specifically play on your brains, right? And your reward system. And so our brains that evolutionarily were developed, 
you know, think about cavemen, you know, they were developed to kind of look for tigers and lions coming after <laughs> us, right? And so we're, we're hypersensitive to, you know, risk and, and reward. They're de designing these apps and things, even down to when you change your profile picture, guess what? Um, they're gonna push you different notifications and all these things because they know that as soon as you change your profile picture, what you wanna know is, well, who noticed that, right? Yeah. So they design these softwares to specifically um, addict us um, and our brains to those um, to those kind of responses, and I think once people start to know, like, oh, they're actually doing this. It's it's. I also relate it to like vaping, right? Once you once you realize that like companies are trying to make money off of you yeah. and off your clicks, then then you start going, well, maybe I don't want to be a part of that, or I need to be aware of that. Right. I you think know? like I recently worked an event at my catering, and it was like a weed technology firm mm -hmm. and they they basically just said like we look at your search history like we find out what you're searching and we do ads that are just directly mm -hmm. marketed for those people and it's kind of scary and i also like i had a really cool experience with that too because i actually lived with my cousins in silicon valley this summer and my um, uncle is a software engineer at apple <laughs> and for the first time i was like wow humans are really like trying to create this thing to trap kids and it wasn't like okay, they're trying to do this to have, make kids have fun. No, they're trying to get, they're trying to make money off this, and they're trying to get more users. And tr they're literally making this to be an addiction. And that was like really powerful to, for me to live in that and just see that every day. And I, I actually deleted a bunch of social media off my phone when that happened because I was like, there's a man behind this. This isn't just some <laughs> almighty power of social media in my pocket. There's a man trying to control my yeah. life. And it is. And I think what's really interesting about that is so, so we see, we see kids get so connected to social media so early now. It's just younger and younger. And so the average age of kids getting a smartphone used to be like 12, 13. Now it's down to like 10, 10, 11 is, is where kids are getting their first smartphone. And, and parents really still the vast majority of parents have no clue how to manage that with the kid, have no clue how to set parental controls. And so we do a lot of educating of parents to just say like, you have to stay up enough on this stuff. You have to be monitoring your kid's social media um, and you have to slowly give them freedom just like you would with a car, mm -hmm. right? You don't just, you know, say, oh, here you go, take take my fancy car. You have to know and, and, and train them. And, and the problem is a lot of parents don't know how to do that. And so then you have kids who are getting in way deep. And, and it used to be that we'd worry so much about cyber safety, like, you know, a stalker would, yeah. would find you or a pedophile. It's not so much that anymore. It's helping kids understand, well, what do you do if, if your seventh grade friend posts, I'm going to kill myself? Do you know what to do? Right. Um, and so that, that's where we just have to keep, keep helping support mm -hmm. parents, too. And I kind of want to piggyback off that, but switch directions. And I know you did work with the Littleton uh, mm -hmm. school shooting. And we did, we have seen in the past, like people post things about school shootings. Mm -hmm. I was wondering if there's a template that you see or reoccurring patterns with school shootings before they occur in individuals. Yeah, I mean, the research on this is, is really interesting. So, so the FBI has done a lot of work just about mass shootings in general. And then the Secret Service and the Department of Ed and FBI have all done work on specifically on school shootings. And what they'll say is there's, there's no profile. There are certain things that after the fact tend to be in common. And those are things like um, the person feels like they, um, 
they have some kind of strong beliefs or they're justified in doing something. And so that's where you see, you know, people who, who either have aligned with some right wing um, hate group or racist group or, you know, I'm specifically mad at this school because they, you know, I'm a victim of how they treat me. So it's kind of like a justice thing. So you see that um, typically um, it's it's someone who um, more, more than uh, girls, it's boys. Um, so that that would be probably the most common thing is it's um, it's, it's a young um, teenager, adolescent uh, male. Um, but there really isn't a profile that you can say A, B, and C. Um, I think what you hear from the media a lot because they jump in so quickly and um, don't get all the, the facts is they usually it's a, well, they were bullied, right? So the first thing when someone dies, whether it's suicide or, or does a school shooting is, well, who bullied them, right? And, and what I'm finding is that it's much more complicated than just this person gets bullied, they were mad, and then they go do this thing. What typically we found, and we found this in our case at Arapahoe High School too, is yes, um, this young man certainly had some things that he was mad about and felt like he had been wronged, but we also found a lot of kids who thought he was really nice, who um, he treated well, who um, were completely amazed that, that he would have done this, um, and so there are kind of three, you know, profiles that, that, that you can kind of, or not profiles, but categories that you can kind of sort these into. One is someone who's kind of what they call antisocial or um, uh, um, in some cases psychopath or sociopath, which is that they, they really are planning this and they put on this other face in front to kind of hide it. Um, but they've really... Um, uh, kind of gone off the rails from society, but they're they're kind of still in control in in the way that they hide it. The other um, would be kind of a traumatized, so so kind of I've been through so much in my life, and life's been so hard to me that I'm finally kind of giving up um, and just doing it. Um, and um, and then the other um, I think is is one that's more kind of a a reactive to a situation. You know, I had a particular situation, and um, so so you can kind of lump them into those groups. Um, but it's it's not easy at all. And when it comes to school shootings, you can't just say, well, if this happens, this is what's going to cause it. And and people forget they're still really, really rare. Right. Yeah. And I think that kind of goes along with isolation. Like these kids are feeling mm-hmm. isolated, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and you mentioned like with social media how some, you can now post like, oh, I'm going to kill myself mm-hmm. or oh, I'm going to shoot up the school. Can you talk about like what advice you would give to people mm-hmm. if they see that um, in one of their peers? Yeah, I think... Um, it, it's tough. What I usually say is uh, always, just, always assume that if somebody tells you something, assume that they're they're telling you the truth. And it's hard to do that because I think teenagers kind of know that everybody says stuff maybe that they don't necessarily mean, and there's a lot of this kind of joking around or sarcasm. But what we train our staff to when they're trying to identify kids who may pose a threat is to say, if they say it, believe them until we prove it otherwise, right? And so if you have a friend who posts something like, I'm going to kill myself, don't just go, oh, whatever. You need to ask, like, why are you saying that? And I'm going to talk to somebody else to check on you because um, if someone's going this step, the, the progression we talk about is think, say, do. That in most things in life, the way humans approach it is we think about it, we talk about it, then we do it. And, and that's just kind of how we work. And so if someone's thinking about it, the next step is they may say something about it. And so always check, always take it serious and say, why would you say that, you know, and, and express to people like when you say things like that, it makes me worried about you and I'm going to check on you every time. The hard part is I think 
as people go through adolescence, there is this kind of drama and trauma culture. And I think you guys have had to deal with that even more than we did growing up where some people are, are attracted to the drama and trauma of like, I'm going to post these things and just see what reaction I get. And that's how I'm going to get my needs met is by saying I'm the saddest and I'm the, you know, I've got the worst things going on because they want people to give them that attention. And so all of us through life have to kind of help to, you know, sort out how do we get that person help? And yes, there are some people who throw it out there to get that need met. Can you possibly talk about what would you say to someone that is possibly in the think or the say mm-hmm. stage that before they do it, whether it be a school shooting, mm-hmm. suicide, what advice would you give to one of a person in that situation? Yeah, I, th- I think what I talk to kids a lot about um, when we're going through these situations, maybe we've identified a kid who's made a threat or whatever, is um, to take a second and really think about um, the people in your life. Because what I've found is that a lot of um, a lot of young people who are in this kind of desperate stage um, have really just lost sight or lost track of the people who do care about them. And either they become so zeroed in on just my life is terrible that it's hard for them to, to figure that out. Um, but I would say take a second, stop, and think about it. Um, the biggest advice I give to students is, man, life is so much bigger than where you are right now. It's so much bigger than high school. It feels like your world is is so um, tied into what's going on with your friendships and your school and your relationships. But you know what? Your life is so much bigger and there's so much out there. I think when you're in high school, you, you just don't realize how big the world is and how many people out there are probably going to be great people for you to connect with and that you're going to find your group. You're going to find awesome things to do. You're going to find your way in life. You just have to get through this this point and it's really easy and that's just the nature of going through adolescent development to think that your world is right here and right now and everything's super dramatic um, but there's a big world out there yeah no, I, that's one of the realizations I've come to in college you know is yeah. we're we're from a small town and you're from a small town mm-hmm. as well like everything's so connected within the community and you feel like if you yeah. venture outside of there like what is there out and I've realized and we've all gone out of state that there's so much more to this world that's for exploring. And I also think that people, when they do try and commit a like crazy act like that, mm-hmm. rather whether it be suicide or a school shooting, like they don't understand that it's a permanent action. Like they think it's, like you said, the easy way out and they're willing to just do it at the time, but they don't know the yeah. consequences of that. And I think you definitely do see the consequences because you have to deal with the families and everything. Mm-hmm. Can you maybe elaborate on that a little bit of how hard that is and what it's like? Yeah, I, I think I think that's a good point. I do think that part of the curse of being a teenager is you have short-term thinking mm-hmm. and you're thinking about what's right in front of you tomorrow or next week. You're not thinking about five years down the line um, and those kind of things. And so it is easy to just live in the moment. And so when when somebody does make a um, decision to do something to their own life or to other people, um, there's a huge amount of um, recovery that has to happen. And, and parents never will be the same after they go through something like that with their kid. Um, their siblings will never be the same. And so what we do is we try to do the best that we can to help them through that, that grief process. We talk a lot about um, two weeks, two months, and two years. So when you go through the death of a loved one, Um, typically there's kind of this first two weeks, which is a a huge shock and fog. And it's kind of the part you don't remember very much. Um, 
So that first two weeks is, is a huge kind of shock and fog piece. Um, the next two months is you're just trying to kind of figure out how to get back to any kind of routine that feels normal. Um, you're, you're kind of going through some physical recovery and, and your own grief and, and, and then it takes really two years for people to kind of get back to a place where they're not constantly impacted by it. And it's, part of that is because that first year is usually a lot of anniversary dates that are really hard. So it's the first Christmas or, you know, Hanukkah without your kids, the first, you know, um, you know, whatever, um, that you have as a family and, and you get through a one year anniversary date. So really that two years. So we talk with people a lot about that and the steps they have to take to take care of themselves, getting through that grief. Um, but, um, it's a long, long recovery process. And I don't really, I, I think a lot of people before they do these acts don't really understand how big of a ripple effect they're going to make and how maybe some person they've met once in their life can be impacted by this. And mm. of course you're like totally mm -hmm. throwing your loved one's lives through a complete, mm -hmm. into a complete like tornado. Yeah. Yeah. There's a bit, I mean, there's a, there's a debate in the mental health profession around, um, you know, mental illness and if you die of suicide or do a school shooting is that proof that you had a mental illness right and mm -hmm. some people will say no not necessarily right some some people were diagnosed with a mental illness before that well mental illness is really based on a, a book a diagnostic criteria right and depending on who's talking to you whether you meet that diagnostic criteria or not right whether you're you have bipolar disorder you have a depressive disorder you have you know antisocial disorder it's not a science in the way that a lot of sciences are, are right? In terms of, you know, hey, I, I give you this blood test and boom, you have this disease. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the challenges with mental health diagnosis right now is it's such a spectrum. It's not a, a hard science that, you know, a lot of the way that we impact it is through talking and through other kind of therapies that we, we have measured. But um, there's a lot of great research out there that um, is counter to, to what I think we see in the medical profession right now, which is just, let's give you the next pill. So for example, um, when we, we talk a lot with people about, um, the power of positivity, right? Mm -hmm. And this is the model that really talks about, there's, there's just as much research that says, if you practice gratitude, if you practice, um, uh, positive relationships, right. That you're, you're going to impact your mental health just as much as if you take Prozac. Really? Right. Oh. That's that's the research that's coming out now, and that's why where we're trending in terms of our prevention programming is really around helping kids develop strengths in their life, um, and figuring out who are those adults in my life I can trust, what are the things I can do to keep me healthy, um, as opposed to just the old model, which was, hey, you should watch out if if you see this, you know, that could mean someone could die of suicide, or mm -hmm. you know, it was kind of this whole scare tactic of we tell you a traumatizing sad story yeah, right. and then say don't do don't that, do that right? right? No, the the approach now is. What do you need in your life to be healthy mm -hmm. as opposed to talking about all the horrible stuff? Because, again, your brain focuses on fear. Right. Can you talk about some of those measures people can use to keep their lives healthy, first mm -hmm. of all? And then and can you also elaborate on how changing your perspective on certain events can help improve your life and when you might be in a situation where you're, when you're really depressed or oh. what some people would describe as like a bad mental health state. Mm -hmm. How do you, how do people change their perspectives and look at things in a yeah. positive attitude? Well, number one, I would say you can never give up the idea that there are other people who want and can help you. I think if you get to the point where you say nobody can help me, then it is really, really hard because once you get to a certain age, you have to be able to let people in. And so I would say, 
you have to stay open to allowing other people to try to help you. But in terms of just taking care of yourself, yeah, you, you have to, you have to have people in your life that you talk to. You have to have a, um, someone who's older than you. I would say kind of a mentor figure. If it's not your parents or family members, who's an older person who's been through life ahead of you that you can talk to. Um, you have to work really hard to know your body um, and, and be aware of um, how, you know, how healthy you are, how much exercise and sleep you're getting. There's a huge amount of research about sleep right now. Um, and that's another thing I, I'd really like for kind of our younger generation to, to realize is that all of that exposure to your blue screens has a significant impact on your, on your sleep. And one of the research studies I just read uh, in the past year was about um, they, they correlated um, kids who were on their um, phones um, after bedtime so that they were allowed to take their phone into the room and they were on it after, I think it was 9.30 or 10 p.m., had a much more significant rate of depression and suicidal ideation than kids who didn't. So just that exposure um, at nighttime and the impact to your sleep. So those are all, I think, just really, really big things um, is having a regimen that you that you know when you feel yourself going into that dark place that you can go, oh man, I, I have to do A, B, and C, mm-hmm. um, right? Yeah. Um, one of the problems you mentioned was that we might not have someone we trust to talk to or that we're just kind of scared to talk about it with people that we're close to, like our friends. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about the stigma in high school and college just about talking about mental health? Yeah. Yeah, I think that's, that's tough because for so long, um, people have not wanted to admit it if they have some kind of challenge or issue. And, um, and that's why really I've shifted from even using the term mental health to just talking about the brain mm-hmm. because everybody has a brain. Yeah. <laughs> and so if you just say, listen, this is how our brains work. And guess what? Everybody's brain's different, but there are some things that our brain does. And sometimes we have to be aware of how our brain works um, because we're susceptible. So for example, because our brain focuses on the negative, when you look at a picture of yourself before you post it, you are going to see all the negative, right? Mm-hmm. And, and when some comments on, on something that you post, you're going to look for the negative first. And so you have to be attuned to that. So educating yourself about how your brain works and trying to say, oh, that's my brain, you know, doing this. It's really amazing. The brain is really trying to keep you safe, but it, it leads you down this path of focusing on the negative as opposed to the positive. So you have to practice um, that piece, I think, is, is, um, is really important. Um, I don't know if that... Yeah, and I, I question, think, but but it in terms of the stigma piece for teenagers, just talking about it. Um, what I hear from kids a lot right now is they're either on one side or the other. Either it's the side of like I'm going to talk about every single thing that yeah. I can, and 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 I don't care who knows it. And people are like, oh my gosh, or they're on the other side of like I'm not talking about that stuff. What we need is the middle. We need we need teenagers and young adults to say, yeah, I can admit it if if I'm down. But I'm also going to be willing to talk about what am I doing to get myself better, right? And, and that's the balance we need is you don't have to tell everybody everything about your life. You don't have to tell everybody um, your, the history of your depression or the history of what's gone on in your family or the challenges. But it's important for you to open up enough for people to be good supports to you. Right. And I think that process of self-reflection and finding what makes you happy is something I've really learned in college and just mm-hmm. trying to better myself and trying to figure out what makes me tick. Because ultimately, if you're not happy with yourself first, you know, that's the biggest thing, right? That's right. If you don't, if you don't have a piece, and, and that's why I always tell, um, tell people, you know, 
you have to have peace with who you are and comfort with who you are um, or everything's going to be a struggle. And we all have times in our life when we don't feel as good about ourselves, or we, we wish we had done this or whatever. Um, but your entire life is going to be a battle in your own head around, am I good enough for me? Mm-hmm. Right. And, and some people that comes real easily and other people, it's a constant struggle. I think one of the main factors we do see in these dramatic events, whether it be suicide or a school shooting is a large amount of isolation. Um, can you talk about how that stigma can maybe create the isolation and what someone would do if they feel isolated? Yeah. And I think, I think that's a really interesting concept because to be real honest with you, with my experience, most of the kids who, who I've been involved with were not isolated by the typical terms, right? There are kids who had a lot of friends. There are kids who, um, were popular. Um, most of the kids I've worked with who died of suicide were involved in sports or clubs, um, had a really good group of friends. Um, but there was something going on that not everybody knew about, or they didn't let everybody into. Um, a lot of times what you hear when you talk to kids whose friends have died in these tragic incidents is, you know, well, I knew something was going on and they, they, they shared this with me, but I didn't know it was that bad. Or I didn't really think they would, would do this. They seem like everybody else. You know, we all go through our ups and downs. And so um, one of the things I've really been focusing on is the sense of isolation. And how do you tell when somebody is starting to um, uh, express now, I feel isolated? And, and there's ways that that happen, even, even if it doesn't seem like it. So, for example, um, one of the things that I've really been focusing on lately is the connection between drug and alcohol use and impulsive decisions. Because what also happens in, in adolescence a lot is as kids' brains are developing, they're also experimenting now with drugs and alcohol. And when your brain is impacted and your judgment is impacted, if you are already struggling with a depression or feeling isolated or not good enough, um, then if you're impaired, you're going to make irrational decisions. And so what we've seen is some kids have made those irrational decisions um, partially related to being impaired. Mm-hmm. And, and so we have to really talk about, you know, again, bring it back to your brain. This is ha- what happens to your brain when you put yourself in an intoxicated position. And if your brain's already struggling or stressed due to anxiety, due to you know pressure about being perfect or getting into the right college or passing the test or, or your girlfriend breaking up with you, you're now in a vulnerable position. Mm-hmm. And so I, I describe it for kids sometimes like it's kind of like Russian roulette. You know, you don't know if you're gonna, your brain is going to be the one that's going to kind of you know, crack under this stress and then when you add the drugs and alcohol to it. So that's another piece that we've really been talking about is just you can feel isolated in your own mind even if you're still going out with your friends and you're going to parties and you know you're getting A's in school. And I think that like kind of persona that people put on like that everything's okay is really big that you touched on and especially in sports. I just want to know what you think of the sports Mm. culture in high school and college and just like there's so much research coming out about mental aspects of the mm-hmm. game and failure and mm-hmm. how that all kind of relates. Well, it's, it's such a hard thing because I think um, sports and other clubs like that, you know, they bring such a great thing to, to kids who participate in them. Um, and so there's a lot of benefits to them. Um, I think, unfortunately, like, like other parts of our society, sports has been elevated um, to a point where it, it does get unhealthy. And I think now with all the club sports and the, and the kids, you know, and parents putting so much money and effort into kind of even just to make the high school team. Like, I think it's become, it's come, it's gone beyond 
what it was intended to do, which was to help kids learn how to fail and learn how to be part of a team and learn how to face adversity. And so in a lot of high schools, what you hear from the average student is like, well, the school only cares about you if you're a, a jock or if you, you know, are a cheerleader or, you know, whatever. And, and I hate to hear that um, because now looking back as an adult, I wish I would have been more in the band in high school. I wish I would have been more in other things that, you know, and interacted more with some of the kids that weren't as much like me um, because there's so much to learn. But it's hard to tell that to kids who are so just nervous about their own identity and, and fitting in. And so it takes a really strong, mature kid to to be able to do that, to be able to sit next to a kid with a disability at lunch and just talk to him and, you know, um, not feel like someone's going to laugh at you. Um, but... I think most people as they get older realize, yeah, I wish, I wish I would have done that more in high school. Yeah. You know, I totally agree on that. Like mm -hmm. just looking back on it, I mean, I think for both of us, we were associated with the athlete crowd, but I tried to hang out with everyone. And I think that's something that most people need to do is it, it really doesn't like you, we have to get past the point where you got to care what other people think, you know, mm -hmm. and that's, that's so much easier said than done. Um, I realized that and I certainly didn't do it all in high school, but once we get to that point, then I think we can start making more progress. Um, you've mentioned you play the guitar. Um, can you talk about how music and arts and culture helps us cope with depression and oh, yeah. anxiety? Oh, I think it's huge. And I think if you, you know, most people who I think do music or sing or those kind of things, um, will tell you that there's a therapeutic quality to it. And I think part of it is just because you're, you're more in touch with your body and, and music beyond the, the science that talks about, you know, sound waves and those kind of things interacting with your, your body and your vocal cords. And I mean, there's that whole piece, but it's, it's a primal thing too, right? Like I think humans have been doing it for a very long time, um, back to the very beginning when they had voices. And so, um, it can be one of the most helpful and therapeutic kind of calming things if you do it in a group it's also part of this kind of group relational experience of like we're doing this together we're combining to make something bigger than us you know bigger than any one of us um and for me personally um there's nothing like it mm -hmm. um i haven't found anything else like it um that that can just provide you some calm and some peace and um it's also really great for your brain right. oh yeah um, and I think that kind of leads into our next section uh, with rapid fire. Um, one of the questions <laughs> I have for you is, who uh, do you want to see in concert next? Oh, man. Um, you know, I'm pretty picky about my concerts um, anymore. I, I like to see people in a good venue. And, I, and, and so I don't, I'm not, I don't just go to concerts anymore because they've gotten so big and commercialized. But... Um, my big goal right now is Sturgill Simpson. I haven't seen him in concert yet, and I really want to go see him. Uh, I'd probably be number one on my list. If you could see one concert of anyone dead or alive any time oh. in history, who would it be? Oh, gosh, man. I'd probably... I, I, there's so many, but I would probably have to go to Bob Dylan at Newport Folk Festival. Um, That's probably, a great choice. Probably be my number one, just because it's so historical. Mm -hmm. Um I could, or I could maybe do Robert Johnson, his recording session in the 30s. That's awesome. Um, who is your favorite athlete and why? Favorite athlete, um, Walter Payton. Walter Payton, 34 for the uh, Chicago Bears. And mainly just because of the kind of man he was. And he was, when I was, he, he was 
you know, popular when I was uh, a kid. And just, I, I learned a lot from watching how he approached the game and um, his character just was, you know, outstanding. So. What is one thing, one piece of advice you would go back and tell yourself when you were in high school or college? Oh, gosh, chill out. I would just, I'd probably just say, um, you know, spend more time with people who aren't like you uh, because there's so much more to learn and you'll, you'll be so much um, happier that you did. Um, seek out people who are different than you and, and learn about them, learn what they believe and where you can find common ground. What is the first thing you would purchase if you were given $1 million? <laughs> you know, I've never been a big fan of, of winning a million dollars. Probably the, I would, I'd like to say I'd give it all away, but I, I probably would pay off debts. And then um, I, I probably would give a lot of it away because I just feel like money is such a root mm-hmm. of evil. Um, but um, I'd, you know, I, I can't deny that I might buy a guitar, too. <laughs> I'm with you there. <laughs> what is a movie that has impacted your life? A movie that's impacted my life? Um, man, um, there's, a, there's a lot. I think um, if we're going to go non-fiction, I mean, uh, fiction movies, uh, not documentaries, I'd probably go with... Um, I like any of the movies that are about Mandela. I think that's just a pretty amazing story. Um, and then, uh, I don't know if you guys have ever seen it, there's a really interesting movie called Antoine Fisher. It's mm-hmm. about a young man who just went through a lot in his childhood, and it um, it was one of the more true-to-life movies, just from my experience. It was just kind of a kid who grew up with a real tough challenges. Yeah. Very cool. Um, what is a new passion that you would like to get into this next year? Um, I, I really like art. Um, I don't think I have much time to do it, but I really wanted to learn how to do stained glass, mm-hmm. uh, create stained glass. That that's kind of a cool yeah. thing. So I enjoy any kind of art stuff. Um, so that's probably what I would do if I had the time. Cool. Awesome. Well, we're out of time, Nate. Thanks for joining us. We really appreciate it. Thank you guys. Thanks Thank you very much for spending a little time with us. Yeah. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Reimagining Intent podcast. For more information, visit our website at www.reimagininginintent.com or follow us on social media at Reimagining Intent. Also, be sure to check out our new blog, New Insights, on our website.